BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about the Artemis launch, the first in a series of missions that will take humans back to the surface of the moon and eventually to Mars. In this episode, we talk about what's involved in a launch test like this, how the UK has been involved, and what we'll gain by going back to the moon. I'm joined by the Exploration Science Manager for the UK Space Agency, Libby Jackson, who was in the US two weeks ago at the Kennedy Space Centre to witness the launch. Obviously, we were hoping to meet up and talk about how incredible the launch was, but after a series of small issues, the launch was called off. Here's Libby explaining why it was delayed. Wouldn't it have been nice to be sitting here and go, that was amazing, but... In some ways, this is more fun because we can learn a bit about the rocket and what happened. The very first launch attempt uh, back on Bank Holiday Monday, I was out in Florida. I was lucky enough to be there. And the countdown proceeded fairly well. There there were two main problems that, that meant that we didn't launch on that day. The first one happened early on. And... This Artemis rocket, the Space Launch System SLS, it's fueled and powered by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. The hydrogen and the, the uh, oxygen combine, uh, they explode, and that controlled explosion gets thrown out the bottom and pushes the rocket in the other way. So you've got to get all that cold liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen into the rocket. It's called tanking. And as that was happening on the first launch attempt, The engineers in launch control who were monitoring all of this saw there was a leak in one of the connectors, essentially between the launch pad and the rocket itself. Um, They've got these these quick disconnects, you know, a bit bit like you have a hose pipe at home, basically. Yeah, (laughs) imagine that, but but with really cold liquid gas going through it. And everyone, oh, it was the first problem we heard in the count. They went, oh, that's not very good. But actually, the team... uh, launch control had seen this before they warmed the quick disconnect up a bit that with thermal expansion it expanded it contracted back down and then it kind of clicked into place and we were fine and we carried on through the countdown and that was great but then later on through the countdown there was another problem with the liquid hydrogen uh, at the bottom of this rocket there are four engines uh, the four engines actually have been um, repurposed refurbished from the space shuttles so they're not new but they've been all you know, refurbed, checked out, they're all lovely, ready to go. But they've got to be really cold, ready for the really cold gases to flow through them when uh, you set, when you ignite the rocket, when, when you uh, reach the end of the countdown. And the way that the team cool this down is by flowing liquid nitrogen around the rocket. They called it an engine bleed sequence, which was confusing me and many, many people at the launch pad as they were talking about engine bleed. We're all going, what's that? What's that? What do you mean? So they're readying the chambers to receive the hydrogen and oxygen and they need to be cool. Yes. And they had a they have temperature sensors that were monitoring the temperature of these four engines. And one of them, engine three, was showing a little bit warmer than the others. And that was a problem because you've got to make sure that they're all at the right temperature. And the engineers were scratching their head and they were trying all sorts of different things to check it out. And that, plus the delays to the fueling, plus actually some weather concerns, 
there was lightning when we were uh, getting ready for the countdown. It meant essentially that they ran out of time through the launch window and this this engine was not getting cold and they, they called it a day on Bank Holiday Monday. And the clock stopped at uh, 40 minutes before launch, never got going again. We went home. What uh, NASA did and all the engineers did was that they, they looked at what had happened with that engine that wouldn't get cold. And when they looked at all the telemetry that they saw, they worked out that it's just a sensor issue. The laws of physics were there. Uh, they knew how much hydrogen was flowing into this engine. They know the flow rates. They looked at all their other telemetry and they went, we know physics says this was cold enough. It was just simply this, this temperature sensor was, was wrong. You know, it's like a thermometer needs tapping or something. So they looked at all of that. They said, right, we can go again for another launch attempt. We're going to look at all of our different telemetry data so that when we get to that point when we need to make sure that the engine's cold enough, we're good to go. So everyone got back up and then on, they were originally going to try and launch on Friday last week. They delayed it to a day to Saturday to give them more time to sort this problem out and figure out the sensor data. Saturday, all started again. We all, well, I didn't actually, I'd come home at this point, but everyone went back to the launch pad. Everyone got ready to go. And somewhere then at the beginning of that launch countdown, as I understand it, as they were getting ready to fuel again, there was an unexpected and uh, unintended overpressurization of one of those lines, one of those hoses. They, they got too much hydrogen through it. And as they were doing the fueling again for this second countdown, they found another leak in a different quick, quick disconnect, a different connector between the launch pad and the rocket, and they couldn't stop it. I think it was actually quite a big leak. They tried all the same troubleshooting steps that they tried in that first countdown and fixed this problem, couldn't. The suspect uh, is that perhaps that over the, that overpressurization early on in the countdown might have perhaps caused some challenges there. So they called that countdown off uh, much earlier on through the sequence. Actually, I think there was a I can't quite remember the details, but it was much earlier on. They said everybody go home, and now they've gone and worked it out. They've gone, yeah, we've got a leak in this quick disconnect. And so what's happened now is that NASA engineers have gone to the launch pad. They, they are constructing a sort of little clean room work site around this pesky quick disconnect to try and fix it at the launch pad. They want to do that uh, because having, you know, replaced the quick disconnect, checked it out, and replaced whatever seals or whatever's happened in that they need to sort out, they want to try and fuel the rocket again to make sure that it's not leaking. And the only place you can check that this leak isn't leaking by fueling it is on the launch pad. Uh, so that's what they're doing. <laughs> and all being well, then that will fix that out. And then we can go for another launch attempt. So I've got many questions. So one, I think the most key thing probably to understand is launch windows. They're not just there to set the draft. I mean, they are quite dramatic and quite fun. But why, why do we have these launch windows and why are they sort of bundled together and then, you know, and four weeks passes? Whenever you want to put anything into space, you want to get it to somewhere specific in space, a specific orbit, perhaps you're flying to the International Space Station. In this case, of course, we're trying to fly to the moon. And so there's a mission profile, the, the trajectory, how you're going to fly, the route you're going to take through space to get from the Earth to the moon. And in order for that to work, you need the Earth and the moon to be in just the right alignment. There are solar panels on the Orion spacecraft, the, the service module 
that's attached to the capsule where the humans sit. That's been built by the European Space Agency. There are four solar arrays that will power the spacecraft. So you need the sun in the right place when you've just got up into space and these solar arrays deploy so that you can get enough sunlight to make sure there's enough power. So there's, there's, there's sort of little different bits through the mission. They want to make sure that the sunlight's just right at the moon when they get there so they can see what they want to see. So essentially, you've got to make sure that when you lift off the Earth and the Moon are in just the right alignment so that when you get to the Moon, everything's just so. And that's what constrains us to only being able to fly at certain times. We've got a little bit of flexibility here. When we were trying to launch on Bank Holiday Monday on the following Saturday, there was a two-hour launch window. So there was a period of two hours. If we launched at any point during that time, the trajectory, the, the route was going to be good enough and you could correct it in that time so that you, you would get to the Moon. But it, it's still quite specific. If you're launching and trying to get to the International Space Station, there is an instantaneous launch window. You can only blast off at a particular time when the International Space Station is flying overhead, right over your launch pad. If you go at any other time, you wind up in a completely different wrong bit of space. And it's surprisingly hard to get through space in the wrong direction because of the laws of physics. Uh, you wind up spending way too much fuel and it's really challenging. So that's why it's always, we talk about launch windows and launch times and it's really quite precise about when we launch. So when when are we, uh, we're obviously waiting uh, on some press conferences on uh, when when precisely they'll try and launch it again, but what's the rough feeling on when it might launch and what, their sort of main concerns are obviously we talked about the leak and fixing that but what what are the main factors so nasa obviously need to fix this leaky quick disconnect the other thing that they are looking at and might cause a problem is something called the flight termination system now this is the the system in the rocket that needs to work if this rocket veers off course it would detonate the whole rocket causing a massive firework in the sky rather than an uncontrolled lot of you know very explosive liquid hydrogen and oxygen heading towards the wrong place on earth so you want that system to work and the the battery in it is essentially sort of reaching the end of its best before date if they have to replace that, they've got to roll the whole thing from the launch pad back to the vehicle assembly building. That takes uh, you know, 12, 12, 24 hours, something like that. You've then got to get into the rocket. You've got to replace it. You've got to roll the whole thing back. We wouldn't be looking at launching until perhaps October or November. All of NASA's statements have sort of kept referring to the current expiration date of, of this bit of kit. I, I get the sense they're trying to, to look at it and, and find a waiver to this rule to say, look, if we can show that the battery is still good and this system is fine, we can go essentially past the best before date and launch again. And if they can sort all that out, we might see a launch attempt uh, later in September or perhaps in, into October. So we'll wait and hear. Um, sort of, everyone's looking at NASA to give us an update on those different problems and decisions about and then when they can go for another launch but it'll be before christmas and so then my next question is so this is i want, I want to give the listeners a sense of like this is a testing ground that is what artemis one the first in a, you know several missions that will take us to the moon is for so are these things you know so like the 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 leaky hose these are things you can only are these things you can only test in situ is it the first time that all of this is all tested together in in place 
Yeah, so this this is the first time we've ever tried to launch this rocket. It is a test. NASA have done some tests before we get to this point. They did something called a wet dress rehearsal. So a couple of times over the summer, they put the rocket on the launch pad. They filled it up with fuel, all about checking out that you know everything works. It all connects together and so on. And in fact, that first leak that I was talking about, those quick disconnect leaks, they'd seen that problem in the testing. And that's why the engineers had the plans to how to fix it and to how to sort it all out. They didn't in those tests get all the way down to the chilling of the rocket engines. So that was why we came across, I think, that problem uh, then. The second time, and I, I haven't quite caught up with all the details, yeah, whatever happened at the start of that countdown that looks like it might have caused the, the problems, I don't think that was supposed to happen. So they'll be looking at that and go, why did that happen? And let's sort our procedures out and so on. But this is the whole point of testing and learning. And whenever you do something new for the first time, you've got to try these things out and work it out and, and refine your processes and procedures. I bet if anyone's ever tried to make a cake or follow a recipe for the first time, you know, you do it once, you learn. The second time you do it, you go, oh, no, I need to write down an extra bit that I need to do here or I need to make sure that I put the oven on early or something. It's the same sort of thing. And it's part of the space business. It's part of building a brand new rocket and figuring out how to get it into space safely. I'm really curious what the mood was like over there because I've never been to a launch and particularly this time around, it was, you know, it's probably the most exciting launch, maybe more exciting than James Webb in a way that we've had, you know, in three, four decades. I I worried when they invited all the celebs down because I was like, oh, you're. It's like you know, like saying don't don't work with children or animals. Something will go wrong. What what was it like over there? Where, you know, where were you watching from, and what was the feeling like? I was in the press center, uh, which was a very last minute thing that actually happened. It was even very last minute that I went out at all. So for me, one of the the sort of feelings was I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe that rocket is on the launch pad. And that whether it happens today or whether it happens later, we are doing this. I have to say I've been working in the, the space business nearly all my life and uh, and in mission operations. I've, I've, I've been to several launches. I've seen lots of missions go. And the one thing you sort of know is that a rocket is never ready to go until it goes. So I, I had gone out there actually with the expectation that it wasn't going to launch because then I'd be really nicely surprised if it did. If you go the other way, you wind up really disappointed. And so, you you know, you go and you prep and you go, no, this this might happen and we're ready for it. But it might not. And I think that was the sense of, of a lot of people at the, at the press centre where I was, because I was with journalists who had been to lots of launches before, and we knew that this was the first attempt. And I think without any real insight, the kind of armchair expert feeling and my feeling was there was about a 50-50 chance of it getting off the ground, because you, you never knew what was going to happen. But of course, you, it was so exciting to see, because for me, I got into the space business because I read all those stories about the Apollo missions. I was born in 1981, just before the first shuttle launch. At the time, as I was growing up, Apollo seemed like ancient history to me. I was reading the stories, you know, watching the, the clips, devoured them. That's what got me inspired and, as I say, led me to follow a career in the space industry. But, I, I mean, I look back, like, I can't believe it. I mean, I was born nine years after the, the, the last moon landing. It seemed like it was, it was ancient history. So 
to have spent my whole career hearing about those moon missions, knowing about them, loving working in human spaceflight, the International Space Station, to suddenly be there to see this huge, huge rocket on the launch pad, knowing that this is the first of several. The European Space Agency is building the next service modules. I hear about that all the time. In NASA are building Orion. We're building the Lunar Gateway. There are contracts placed for the lander systems that will get humans to the moon. This is happening. And I think for me, being there in person, seeing it actually happening, knowing we got all the way to launching it, that was quite something to see and to feel and to realize because it it can be quite abstract I think even to a lot of us in the business and uh, so that was that was for me I think what it was and I I suspect that feeling might be magnified on a much larger scale for the general public I think those who know know that this is exciting and that this rocket when it takes off is going to be a huge spectacle it's the most powerful rocket ever launched and that it's going to the moon and that it's got modern technology on it. This is not the Saturn V. This spacecraft has got modern cameras, modern communication systems. We're going to see live pictures of the moon, the most beautiful things. Think what James Webb has done to us recently, the stunning, stunning images that are coming back from that. I I can't even begin to get excited about what's coming back because I can't quite imagine what these pictures are going to be like, but we know they're coming. And I think that I my take on it is for the general public, we talk about this and, and they go, oh, yeah, it's nice, it's nice, it's nice. But I sense it might be a bit like before the Olympics or before the, the Women's Euros recently where we were talking about it. But once it happens, once you've had that first game and England win or, you know, the, the, the Olympic Stadium filled and we got our first gold medal, I think everyone's going to go, oh, wow, what do you mean we're going back to the moon and the excitement and the understanding of what we're trying to do will take hold and then everything that we're going to get back from these missions and all the reasons we're going so yeah that's that's what it was like being there it was just this realization is happening yeah i think we were talking about it amongst the team and it suddenly occurred to us that we're gonna a slightly nerdy thing to say but we're going to see the moon in 4K. Not that the resolution is particularly important, but just the idea that, you know, the footage from the 70s is is almost mythological in the way we, you know, we look at it, we revisit, the, you know, I don't know how many times I've watched those astronauts bounce around and we're going to see that with today's technology. Live. Live, this is it. <laughs> as it oh, happens. All that footage before had to be loaded onto films that came back that has been, you know, preciously processed and then hit the the papers a few days later. It was a bit more like James Webb. You've got to wait. This is going to be, you know, they're going to be tweeting from the surface of the moon. Yeah, well, it's early days, but do we think, I mean, do we expect that it's going to be a little bit like the ISS where we have, when they go out and do spacewalks, they just film it and it's just there on, in an almost mundane fashion, it's just on their site, you know, it's it's probably it's going to be something like that, isn't it? Yeah, the the communication systems uh, are there; they're being put in place. Uh, the UK actually is taking um, a, a leading role in pioneering the commercial access to to telecommunication systems around the moon because we're really really good at that in low Earth orbit. It's something that the UK has been great at for for decades. And um, yeah, that the you know that you're further away, you've got le- you've got less less infrastructure there, less communications infrastructure. But absolutely, you've got, um, you will see 
you know, live images from the surface of the moon in resolutions never before seen. And so, and am I, uh, I could be completely off the mark here, but am I right in saying, because it's something I'm very early on in researching, um, but some of that communication would go through Goon Hilly uh, in Cornwall. So some of those images we might see, some of that data will be going through <laughs> through Cornwall. Yeah, so Goon Hilly are involved in this first Artemis flight. The, 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 the team down there, they're prepped, they're standing by. They will be tracking Orion as it goes to the moon. They're providing communication services to some of the CubeSats that are on board. Artemis and will be flying around. So, yeah, we'll wait and see exactly how everything evolves as we get further through the program. Uh, but absolutely, uh, Goon Hilly is... Uh, a deep space communications dish is able to communicate with the moon. Not every antenna can do that. And, uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic that we will see them involved in some way. They're certainly setting up for that commercial service because as well as um, the Artemis program, there's a whole fleet of commercial uh, small lunar landers going to take payloads and all sorts of other things. So there's a, there's a real ecosystem around the moon that's, that's springing up now, and the UK is playing its part in that. Yeah, and so that's a perfect time because I, I think it's spectacularly cool that in the UK we do have a role in this and it's perhaps not very well known. Um, you represent the UK Space Agency. So could you just tell us kind of what, how does the UK have a part in these Artemis missions? The UK is a proud founding member of the European Space Agency. And it's always worth saying at this juncture, it's not an EU organisation. We've not left it. There's much going on with many different things, but but the European Space Agency is is an intergovernmental organisation. And so we collaborate uh, with 22 other member states in that to come together to build missions that we can't afford to do on our own. And the Artemis programme is not NASA going back to the moon. It's NASA going with international partners. This is a a global effort. This is a difference to the Apollo program back in the 60s and 70s. On top of this space launch system rocket is the Orion capsule. The European Space Agency have built the service module underneath. It's got the solar arrays. It's got the the gas tanks that will keep the crew alive. It's got uh, the thrusters. It's the thing that you need to get Orion to and from the moon or to and from the gateway. And so... We, we can't go back to the moon without the European Space Agency and NASA. It, it's, it's truly a partnership. And that Orion spacecraft uh, for now is just flying around the moon, but in a few years' time we'll be visiting the Lunar Gateway. And this is a new space station like the International Space Station, but much, much smaller. If, if the ISS is, is about the size of a five-bedroom house, uh, the, the Lunar Gateway will be a small bijou, you know, studio flat, one bed flat, very, very small, with four astronauts on it for a month's stay at a time. And the UK's building part of it. Um, so the refueling system, which is re- really key because we're going to have to keep this thing positioned at the right place in space. You need fuel to do that. It will also uh, provide fuel potentially for any lunar landers and so on. The, there's a company in the UK called Talazalenia Space down in Bristol. They're building that. Imperial College are building one of the science experiments that's on board. Um, they're really good at building magnetometers, instruments that detect magnetic field. In fact, I, I go right back to, to, to my career. I was um, I did my undergraduate degree and I worked with the team who are now you know still doing that and, and building these things 20 years later. So they're really, really good at that. 
And that magnetometer will be there detecting the radiation environment, seeing what uh, the magnetic field looks like out there. So we're playing our part and we're looking ahead to the Council of Ministers meeting um, at the European Space Agency later this year. These 22 member states, uh, we all come together every three years. We bring our science ministers and our, and our uh, approved spending from our treasuries and decide what to invest in and what to spend money on for the next three years. And, and it will be the decisions that get made in November uh, in Paris when all the countries come together that will set the course for what the European Space Agency and their astronauts do in these lunar missions, will we see European astronauts, uh, European Space Agency astronauts, I should say, will we see them landing on the moon one day? Those are the sorts of decisions we're making. So it's a really exciting time as we sort of set the course for, for what this Artemis program will be, what the European Space Agency's role in it will be, what the UK's role in it will be. Um, but we, yeah, we're there and we're definitely part of the international community going back to the moon. So I, su- I suspect most people listening will you know, be as excited as you and I are about these missions. But for for the for people who are sceptical out there, what does the UK get by being involved, I suppose? And just more broadly, you know, what what are the benefits of um, restarting this, these visits to the moon, uh, to put it very <laughs> childishly? It's a very, very good and valid question to ask. These space programmes cost money. That in a a world we're in at the minute, cost of living crisis, everything else going on, you've got to ask, why are we doing this? Should we be doing this? The UK's contributions to the European Space Agency's exploration programme cost, I think, a lot less than people think. We spend £1 per person per year. And for that, we get access to the International Space Station. We uh, build rovers that go to the Red Planet, to Mars, to go explore that. We get access to a whole range of other facilities. And we participate in the Lunar Gateway and the Artemis program and all of these things. Uh, And for every pound we invest, we see a return on investment of about £11. The UK government wouldn't put this money into the European Space Agency if there wasn't a good case for doing so the economic reason the economic reasons for doing it so there's that but as well as that as well as the return we see science come back the the science that we get from the international space station helps us better understand how we age how we can develop new drugs how we can lead longer healthier lives in the artemis program we'll be studying the moon now the moon is a unique record of the history of the solar system and therefore a predictor of the future of the solar system and Earth and other planets. And we've been and we've got some some rocks from it, from the Apollo missions, but they all came from about the same sort of area on the moon. And it's a little bit like if aliens landed on Earth in the middle of the Sahara Desert and and scooped up a few bags of sand and went, oh, great, we understand everything there is to know about that that, that blue planet now. It's all covered in blue sand, and, and that's that. And by by sending humans there, you can go and study those the moon better. You say the scientists are massively excited about the rocks that they will return, the information they will gather, and the understanding they'll get about how the solar system evolved, how it will in the future. We're also really interested about looking at these things called volatiles, the missions that when humans return, they're likely to land near the South Pole. In fact, NASA have just recently released some of their candidate landing sites for it. 
And we're interested in the South Pole because there's lots of areas there that are permanently shaded. Because, because of the way the moon sits re- relating to the Earth and the sun, you think when we look at the moon in the night sky, we only ever see the same side of it uh, because, because of sort of how it's tidally linked to the UK and sort of spins around. But the, the poles, therefore, never really see um, lots of sunlight. And in these permanently shaded areas, we think there are these things called volatiles. We know there are these things called volatiles, which are really cold, solid bits of, of gases that today you and I would, would know just floating around. Oxygen, water, carbon dioxide, all sorts of different things. And what you know the exploration community are excited by is that we might be able to use those to help us produce things like oxygen for the astronauts to breathe. If we can learn how to do that, we might one day send humans to Mars. Now, why do we do all of this? What's the point of it? Some of it is, is, is human nature. You know, we've always wondered what's round the corner, over the mountain, you know, up in the over the oceans, up in up in the sky, and so on. Every time we've done that, and we've developed boats or planes or anything, we end up de- developing technology that comes back and improves all of our lives and, and allows us to fly across the Atlantic and allows us to live in homes. The space industry has brought us the cameras that are in our camera phones every day. We've been talking about the solar power, the solar arrays on the Orion spacecraft. You know, the, the developments of solar technology in space have, were the things that kick-started, I think, some of the solar technology here on earth when you put something into space you have to rely on the sun you have a very small volume you have to make things as light as they possibly can be because getting stuff into space is really hard so when we do all of that and we force ourselves to invent new technologies to go and explore the moon and perhaps one day mars we are investing in technologies that help everybody back on earth so you do all of that and we get the photos, the excitement, the, the inspiration that led me to, and many, many other people I know to choose to work in the space industry. It gets people excited by science and technology. We all rely on space every single day, whether we are checking the weather forecast, whether we're grabbing our phone and asking it to get us to whichever meeting we need to get to, whether we're watching live sports from around the world, and these things have bounced off satellites. It's all there. And we need people to get excited by the space industry. We need people to get excited by the technology industries. So that inspiration element, the fascination of space, that's as much a part of doing it as the science and the technology and the economics and all these other things. So there's loads of reasons we do it. And should we do it? Could we do it? It's it's a massive debate and it's a question we have. It's a very fair question to ask. But I do think that human nature is going to do this and america have essentially said we're going we'd love your help come join us if you want to or not and and that's sort of the discussion i think in 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 this country is is should we be participating in it what's the right value all that money we put into space none of it really ends up in space there's a space station up there there's a little bit but but you know the, the costs of these things we don't pile all the money on the launch pad and set fire to it. It's all invested in jobs and technologies and developing things that are all here on Earth and it continues to support everyone on Earth. To go further down that route, I think now more than ever it feels like, and particularly in the UK, there is a real industry around these launches. There are all these companies all working in little areas together. 
sharing engineering stories and develop like you know building the satellites building the communications and as you said earlier with the the fleet of other nations and private companies going up there it is a real kind of boom industry that's sort of just about just just coming into life well coming into life is unfair because it's been around for a little while but it's about to explode i suppose maybe <laughs> maybe not explode but grow grow massively the uk space sector is still growing even through all the sort of troubled times we've had and, and slow growth um the space sector is growing it employs about fifty thousand people at the moment it, it's forecast to continue to grow and it's it's regional we're not in london the jobs are all over the country we're looking forward to the first uh launches from down in cornwall and up in scotland uh, there's fantastic industry growing in wales uh there's leicester where there's lots of uh great work that's done there at the university and, and technologies there it, it's it's really um, definitely a success story for the UK, something that is growing and something that will continue to grow. We need people to come join the industry. There's, there's opportunities there for lots of people. And then just lastly, probably a real unscientific question, but I mean, it, it feels like something we probably need after the last few years we've had. It's a belief question, but do you believe it will be a, a real unifying moment to see humans go and explore the surface of the moon? I hope so. I, I have just heard about what Apollo did, and this is our generation's Apollo. And I'm excited to experience that, to see what it brings, to see where we go. Apollo was a was a race. It was it was a politically driven you know race. This time the return is more sustained and sustainable. It's about learning how to live and work on the surface of the moon learning how to do that so we can one day send humans to Mars. This this goal that has just been there for decades and decades. And as soon as we got people to the moon in the 60s, people were talking about, can we go to Mars? It is that human push to just go explore. And I'm excited just to see where that goes to, but what we get out of it as well. And and I look forward actually to the debate and the discussion about what's worth it and how do we do it and, and all of these things that people are asking good questions about now. Uh, but yeah, I'm 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 just I'm just excited to see what we learn and and what it brings us and 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 what it's like to be a part of it all. That was Libby Jackson there, the Exploration Science Manager for the UK Space Agency, explaining what we gain by going back to the moon. If you want to find out more about the Artemis missions, head to sciencefocus.com forward slash space forward slash Artemis. This is a page we'll keep up to date with the latest developments and news surrounding the next launch and the next launch window. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, please do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. 